Luke 21 is where we'll be. Um, Planting here in the South has been a very interesting journey for me. Uh, I'm from Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Anybody from Rocky Mount in here? All right, there we go, a couple. Um, Rocky Mount, North Carolina, and this is Greenville, so we're about 45 minutes away from here. Uh, I know the culture really well, so therefore I can make fun of the culture, all right? If you're from somewhere else and you try to come in here and make fun of this culture, you're going to get beat down. But here, uh, if you're from here, you can do it all day long. It's like, you know, no one messes with your sister, but if someone else does, you know. So this is kind of how I I view it. It, it, It's got its own little unique niche about it. And Greenville in and of itself has its own unique niche about it. If you've been here for a few years, you know that already. I I tried to convince um, our church planning resident this the first week he was here, Patrick Cunningham, great guy. Uh, He preached for me last week. Our our goal for him, by the way, is, and we want to send him out and he he was going to go take a core of integrity people and plant uh, the gospel somewhere else. And so I try to tell him about this. And as we're, we're driving along in my, I have a Buick, by the way, um, and don't, don't be envious, but um, I'm driving around in our Buick and I'm telling him, man, this culture is different. I'm telling you, it's, it's so, when it comes to church and religion and the gospel, there's just some really mixed up shady stuff that happens in there. And so we're driving around and I don't know if you've ever been on Arlington Boulevard in front of J.H. Rose High School trying to cross the tracks in that flipping train stops and it stops for like two hours. And something about that is really strange. I'm the only one who gets ticked off. I look around, everyone's completely content. I guess they've just known this for years that this is where you go if you want to sit for two hours because that's what happens. And so we're sitting there and we're sitting there for a long time and I'm telling him, I'm telling you, man, this place is, you know, I'm just trying to give him a picture of what this is and what he's about to face. As that happens, the train finally goes by um, the next day or whatever, um, and it goes by, and we're still sitting there, and there's cars kind of going by this one guy over and over again, and we're like, okay, um, that guy's broken down, and we have to, we have to help him. I, was, I guess I was just trying to impress my resident, you know, let's well, see, I serve people, and so we pull over, and uh, I help him. We help this guy push the car into a parking lot, and we're like, well, what's going on? We try to help him crank it, and he needs gas. And so I say, well, get in the car, we'll, go, we'll buy you gas. He's like, man, I don't have any money. So we, you know, we're driving around with this guy. And it, it's very funny because it was very obvious right from the gate. Like this guy had a, a pretty alternative lifestyle. Uh, he's using really foul language. Uh, the things that he was talking about, what he was going to do that night, were pretty clear that this guy was not a believer. And I think he just saw two young guys and thought, you know, in, in a Buick, he probably thought I was a drug dealer. So um, <laughs> I don't know what it was, but he just felt really comfortable talking to me. And then he said, well, where are you from? He said, I'm from Rocky Mount. I'm like, oh, I'm from Rocky Mount. Where'd you go to school? Oh, you probably never heard of it. It's a little small Christian school. I'm like, oh, uh, yeah. What's the name of it? He told me the name. I was like, that's where I went, you know. And then we start talking. He goes, oh, no. Like, he starts feeling a little bit uncomfortable. What do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, man. There's no easy way to answer that. I've thought of various ways to make, I'm a teacher. You know, what do I say? Um, And I tell him, I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh, well, uh, and he starts like switching gears on me. Like, you know, start to, well, I used to be on a you know, Christian radio station. And he's throwing all these things. And then we're, we're driving around, we're talking. And, and then he starts doing that thing where he's talking about himself, but he's saying it like it's talk, asking about for another person. Let's say I have a friend who struggles with this. How would you handle that? And what if this person came to your church? And he's going on and on and on. And I'm trying to answer it. I'm just giving the gospel, sharing the gospel with this guy, just trying to be faithful and um, it's, it's very clear he was not interested in the gospel at all. But he asked at the very end of this conversation, we're pulling in, we got in gas, pulling back into the place, and he says, let me ask you another question. 
He goes, what version of the Bible do you use? And I'm like, um, I use the ESV, but there's a lot of great translations out there. You know, just try to be as faithful as you can to the original. I did a whole deal. He goes, oh, psh, I won't read an ESV or an NIV or any of that stuff. I'm like, why is that? He goes, well, because I believe in the inspired word of God, which is the 1611 King James Bible. And I won't read anything but that. And I'm going, you, like, I, I didn't get into the dialogue, but I was thinking to myself, really? Like, that is the foundation on which you stand. That's the solid rock for you, right? And, and man, I got in the car with my resident, and he's just like, you know, he looked at me like, what are, you know, what are we, I shouldn't say resident, Patrick. Uh, I get in the car with Patrick, and he, I'm like, he's like, what should we have done? I was like, man, we did all we could there. You know, we shared the gospel with the guy. I said, welcome to Greenville. You know, that's what I said <laughs> to the guy. And it's just interesting, that is a snapshot, though, of what we see here in the South, specifically to Greenville. I remember even recently, another guy, I was sharing, sharing with this guy, telling him about the gospel, telling him about Jesus, and this man said, you know, you should just come to our church. I think you would really love it. And this guy's obviously, he's shacking up with his girlfriend, sleeping with this girl, has no desire to marry her at any point. Um, and I'm like, man, you should come. And he says, well, tell me more about your church. I said, like, well, I was, you know, telling him, sharing, you know, we should preach the Bible. We do, you know, life groups. We're big on missions. And he goes, what do you wear when you preach? I'm like, I'll wear jeans and, you know, a collar shirt. He goes, I can never go to a church like that. I will only go where I can wear a tie and slacks. And I was like, for a second there, like the Holy Spirit like stopped me because I was going, I almost said, dude, you're sleeping with your girlfriend. Like, you know, there was a point in me that just wanted to like nail him. But I was like, uh, like I didn't even know where to go. And so it's interesting to me though, where, where we end up here in the South is there's a great focus on the external stuff and not internal dealing with matters in our heart. And, and here in the South, I think we're just big at faking it and playing the game when there's no real heart change or conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's no, God, you can have my heart. God, here's my idols. God, here's my sin. It's God, here's, the, here's my tie. Here's my Looney Tunes tie, God. See how much I love you? Here's, here's the translation of the Bible that I will defend to my death, God. See how much I love you? And this is what we end up with here in the South, and we don't really end up with gospel transformation. And so that's my fear here in this church, is that we won't understand the dichotomy between the two, the separation between the two things. There's external things that really don't matter in the end, and the gospel things do. And so I don't want to have a church that's full of external things and checklists and not really grabbing the gospel. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want us to see and work through some of these things. And at the end, I want us all to say, this is what the gospel is, and this is what the gospel looks like, and this is the beauty of who Christ is, okay? So this is what Jesus sets up here in Luke 21. Jesus is dealing with people who are focused heavily on external things, and what he does is he goes right to the heart of the issue. Let's look in verse 1, starting in verse chapter 21 of Luke. We'll also have it up on the screen. It says this. Luke looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put into two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, the poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of poverty, put in all she had to live on. 
so this widow is a popular, popular story. Uh, this poor widow who gives two little coins. And it's, if you were to put it in our currency, it would be less than a cent of, an, uh, less than a penny. And this is what she's willing to put in. She's putting everything that she has to live on. She's putting all in is what she's doing. And I've heard it said that when you hear this sermon often preached, it's always about giving, right? So she gave everything. We ought to give everything. Now that's definitely there in the text for sure. But there's even a greater, broader theme in this passage that I really, really want you to see. All right. So in order for us to do that, for us to get context, uh, a basic rule of thumb, if you want to know a context of a passage, it's good to look at what happens before and what happens after. This is how heretics are made if you don't do that, okay? If you're taking one verse and trying to roll with it and build theology on one verse or your view on God based on one verse, you're going to get really jacked up, all right? So it's important you grab what's there before, grab what's after. So we're going to do that. Look in verse chapter 20, starting in verse uh, 46. It says this. Jesus says this, beware of the scribes who, who like to walk around in long robes and love greeting in the marketplaces, in the best seats in the synagogue, in the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses for the pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And then Jesus is capturing who these people are, what they're doing. They're wearing long robes. They're out in public so that people would, would compliment them on, them on their great sermons that they preach. These are the scribes, these are the Pharisees. These are the religious elite. Now, they're sitting at the best table so that people would know that they're the most important and most feared people. Uh, they're praying the long prayers so that people know that they have this intimate relationship with God. Uh, we see those all the time in Christian culture of the people who pray the real weird, windy prayers. Like, God, you know, like this is who these people are. And they're drawing attention to themselves so that people will look at them and say, man, that person has a real close relationship with God, right? And so this is who Jesus is looking at and viewing. And they're all coming into the temple, drawing attention to themselves, giving their offerings. And I'm sure, man, they were big checks, And then we're letting people know, this is what we're doing here. And as Jesus sees all of these people doing this, he also sees this widow give all that she has. And in Mark 12, it's actually interesting. Jesus brings his own disciples into this. And Mark 12 captures captures it even better than Luke, I think, in this regard of he's showing them and marveling at what she's doing, that she's putting everything on the line. And so Jesus um, has this story that kind of sits in the middle of these two bookends. The first part of it is these lofty people who are walking around, who are rich and scabby and judgmental. And what's in the middle of this is this widow and her gift. And then after this, though, is what Jesus says next. It's very interesting. And we're going to grab that. Verse 5 says this. And while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things, you will see the day will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, if you can imagine what this sounded like to a Jewish hearer at this time, it would have blown their minds. 
I mean, it's really hard for us to capture a structure that cannot be destroyed in 2012, mainly because we have missiles. I mean, you can destroy any structure with a missile. We have nuclear warfare that can happen, right? You can blow up whole states and countries with missiles now. So it's hard for us to capture this because, uh, first of all, we don't have some of the ancient structures here in America uh, because we're not that old. Like if you go overseas, uh, what you see are big, massive structures that have been put in place by these heavy, heavy, intense stones. And you see these massive structures that you can say will never be taken down. And here in America, we don't have any of that. We have like the oldest thing that we have in America is Kmart, right? That's like an ancient structure. So we don't have like a a comparison at all to, to this. So it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but think about this. It's everything that they know. It's everything that they're familiar with. It's kind of their culture is this temple, is this big, huge structure. And every, all of life happens around it. That's where you do your offerings. That's where you meet other people. That's where you uh, do community and accountability. And this is where families would repent of sin. Like that's, that's all of life would happen. And so since I can't compare it with building, I'll just do this. It's like the equivalent of God saying, soon I will end the internet. That's the closest comparison I have because it's all about everything that we do as a culture runs through the internet, does it not? I mean, I can't imagine planting a church without the internet. I know people have done it like up till 20 years ago, but 30 years ago. Um, But I can't imagine that. I mean, imagine no more YouTube videos. What would you do without that? Imagine you can't do online shopping, you can't do online banking. You actually have to talk to people face-to-face and not make a passive-aggressive post about Chick-fil-A on your Facebook status. I mean, you actually have to engage in conversation, right? And so it's gone. So can you imagine the panic that we would feel if the internet was destroyed? We would say, what are we going to do with our lives? How are we going to do life now? I mean, some of you have never even lived without the internet. I mean, we get these connection cards now, like people were born in like 1996. I'm like, are you serious? 1996? Like I'm just blown away by that. I remember when the internet like existed, like began, the, the alpha, if you will, like <laughs> of the internet. And I remember having the Commodore 64 in my room and, you know, you, you make a pie chart and that was awesome. That was an impressive thing. If you can make a pie chart with something with different colors. And I played like Jungle Land. I don't know if you've ever played that game, but it's this 8-bit game that you can play on the computer. And I remember the first time I had a chat with someone online and I was like, there's no, like, I, you know, I was thinking to myself, they, they know everything about me now. They can look up files and know where I live. And I was so paranoid about it. And some of you never even had that tension. That's all you know. So our culture now is just built around this whole deal called the internet. No Google. Are you serious? We have to open up a map and know where we're going now. Like we can't find it on some GPS satellite in two seconds in an alternate routes. We had to look at a map and look at little blue lines that look like veins. Like we had to figure it out that way. And so it would destroy us in every single way to know that this massive structure called the internet would be destroyed. And so for these Jews to hear this, that this temple, everything that you do, your whole life is built on, is now gone and erased, and it will no longer exist. They're asking, how is that possible? But here's what I love about the disciples. They have a different response. Look in verse 7. 
They say this, and they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, I love this because multiple times in Luke's gospel, when Jesus was about to do a miracle, they would ask, how is that possible? They would begin to doubt him. The person's dead. You can't bring him back to life. And now they're seeing Jesus do multiple, multiple miracles, one after the next, multiple times. And they're not even going to ask. I mean, he's destroying this massive structure. And they're not even going to say, are you sure you're going to do that? They're saying, when are you going to do that? And what are the signs to follow? So they know that he's at least powerful enough to make this thing happen. And it's amazing to me, the faith that you're already beginning to see grow and be planted in the disciples' hearts. And then Jesus answers by giving what these signs will look like. Let's look at this um, uh, in verse uh, 8. He says this, and he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And so here's what he's setting up. He's saying, this is going to change the culture of so many things that you are familiar and comfortable with. And before that, what you had are these religious elite that God is unpleased with their offerings and their, um, their attitude and their way that they're treating the poor and the widows, Jesus is displeased and uninterested in them. And then you have this whole thing about this structure that all of these people are putting their stock into will be utterly destroyed. And right in the middle is this widow who gives this offering. So what God is showing us here and what Jesus is showing us and what Luke is showing us is that the external stuff doesn't matter because Christ is after your heart. Christ wants us to have the intention of this widow. We say all in. You can have it all. And so the majority of the Israelites, man, they were not here. They were not in on this. They would have been put in categories of who can I be around to let people know that I'm important. How precise can I make this Sabbath day? I know it's a day of rest, but how precise can I make it that would make me look the most spiritual? I mean, how long can I pray so that someone would know that I really have this deep, intimate relationship with God? And it's all about putting the attention on them. them. And the, the heart is not there because they're not saying, how can I kill my idols? How can I fight my sin? How can my affections be stirred more deeply and more profoundly than ever for God? So their heart's not transformed here. You get that? They're focused only the, on the external. And what he's saying here in this text is I'm going to destroy the external to show you how insignificant it actually is and how important and rich the gospel is. That's what's here in this passage. And it's very interesting to me because here in the South, you have something very similar. You have people that build their lives on external junk that does not matter. And it's sad to me because when we do that, we miss the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. And so what we do is we build an entire theology on this to make people feel like 
you're okay with this. You can miss the gospel and still be fine. That's what we do. And we do this whole thing where, you know, you have a lost person that hears a message about the reality and the danger of hell. And what they do is they come up and they, we, we, we reel them in. We get them up to pray a sinner's prayer. Repeat after me, right? Some magical words that we say. And then they say that to get out of hell, it becomes a get out of hell free card, if you will. And they don't respond in any way that gives their heart to God. There's no repentance that's involved. It's all just fire insurance. And we build on this. And what happens in this is we build whole sermons around this thing. And I've even heard sermons of this whole deal. You can make Christ your savior, but he's just not your Lord. I've heard that over and over again. Like as if he's good enough to save you, but he's not good enough to rule over your life. I mean, I cannot think of anything more anti-biblical than that. Because what salvation is, is what Paul says about it, is that you are not your own. You are bought with a price. He also says that you are no longer slaves to your sins, but now you are slaves to righteousness. You're given a new heart. The old has died. Behold, all things become new. You're a new person. And so what we miss in the South is the new person. We build a theology on you can live like hell and still get to heaven. Just do whatever you want. You don't have to be a super spiritual person, right? I totally agree. You don't have to be a super spiritual person. But you have to be a repentant person and you have to believe in the gospel. And if you don't, man, you're lost. And so the, the, the thing that I see often here is a doctrine that would say that you can be a Christian, but you can't, but Jesus may not be on the throne of your life. He's kind of on the outskirts. And if you want him to be in, you got to do a few rituals, right? You got to pray. You got you to ask the Holy Spirit to fill your heart, right? By the way, if you're saved, you have all of the Holy Spirit that you are going to get. Amen? I mean, it's not an installment plan, right? You don't get like arm and then leg and then head. You know, it's not this deal where you get more of it later. You get all of it, which is excellent because that means that you are not yourself anymore. God is changing you to his image because of your new heart. And what I love about this is that's the gospel. He's changing you from the inside out. But what we often do and what I see so much in the South is this view that you can know him, but he can't have your heart. And then what you end up doing is all the external things. And what angers me about it is this. It's a very low view of the person of God. It's a wallflower God who sits in the corner, says, God, I hope you can dance with me. God, I hope that you invite me in to your, you know, to your little world. And it's God saying this to us, and he's asking us, pleading with us in this way. But you're still going to get to heaven, Right? Or it's a bipolar Holy Spirit where he comes in later and goes away and comes back and goes away and he can't make up his mind. Or it's a security of sin in your life. And by the way, any doctrine that allows you to have security of sin is a bad doctrine, okay? The other thing it does is it separates discipleship from conversion. By the way, there's no separation in Scripture. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a disciple. 
and you will be a growing disciple because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and he's constantly changing you. And so a doctrine that does this promotes you to live like hell and get to heaven. And by the way, if you are okay with this kind of life, biblically, you are in no sense, get this, you are in no sense a Christian, biblically. You don't get the true gospel. And what Jesus is showing us is this. He's after our hearts, not the external stuff. And then he shows us something that's very interesting. When you think about this massive structure that's about to be destroyed, and we see it even happen, 70 AD, this whole thing comes crashing down. One of the things that you begin to see in this are what the true believers actually look like. And the identity of true believers who have been changed and been redeemed by the cross of Christ. So I'm going to show you what those are, and we can kind of assess our own lives based on what Jesus shows them, all right? So they're asking the question, what are the signs? This is what Jesus does, verse 8. And he said to them, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and torments, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And Jesus is telling him, and you're going to see many messiahs after this thing is crumbled to the ground that are going to show up and they're going to have their own little gospel twist to it. They might add or take away from it. By the way, the gospel plus or minus is no longer the gospel. And what you see here is Jesus telling them and setting this up, and that is exactly what happens. What Jesus actually says is exactly what takes place. After the temple uh, uh, fell in 70 AD, what you see are multiple people showing up after that, changing the message of what Christ actually did. And Jesus is telling them, don't believe in these people. And here's the thing about a true disciple, a true believer is that a true believer will not base their lives on a false gospel. They will always go back to the gospel that saved them. That's the beauty of the gospel. We're always going to be pushed toward the gospel that saves us. That's what salvation is. Now, are we going to be tempted by certain gospels? Are we going to be um, tested in certain ways to, to maybe chase a doctrine that's not good or a false view of the gospel that's not good? Absolutely. Absolutely. All the time, Ben Tugwell runs into false messiahs and counterfeit gods all the time. I, mean, I remember when I was the first came a believer when I was 11 years old. I believed that I could lose my salvation. And I was always, always asking God back into my heart after I sinned, right? I would cuss or say something bad or gossip, and I'd be like, God, you know, save me again. And like, seriously, think about how messed up that is, right? I mean, how many times can a person get baptized in one day? Seriously, right? And so here you have this life that's a little bit crazy and, and paranoid because I was walking away from the gospel. But Scripture became alive to me because the Spirit of God is working in me and drawing me to the truth of what the gospel is, and I'm drawn back to I mean, my, my first love, the gospel that saved. I mean, Paul even says it boldly in Galatians 1. If anyone comes and preaches a different gospel, even as an angel from heaven, let that angel be accursed. 
And so, man, I could, I could go on. I could even talk about the prosperity gospel, which, by the way, is killing multiple people in Africa. And it's, it, it's, it started here in the U.S., and our consumerism has bled over to countries like Africa and it's oppressing them in a horrific way. And man, here's the thing. You cannot follow a gospel that ends in your health and your wealth and be saved. You cannot. You can, you can be tempted by it in multiple ways, but ultimately you're not going to, with your dying breath, say, God's purpose for me was for me to be healthy and wealthy. Can't do it. Can't do it. And so... What we see here is Jesus building a case for you will love the gospel. Don't listen to the false messiahs that are out there and the false versions of the gospel that are out there. The gospel plus or minus is nothing. Look look at the next sign that Jesus shares. Verse 10. He says this. And then he said to them, nations will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom, there will be earthquakes, various places and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before the kings and the governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And if you even look even further, I'm not even going to read it because of time, but verses 20 through 24 talks about some of the most painful things that you could ever see in Israel's history. I mean, you hear stories about pregnant and nursing mothers being falling at the edge of a sword because of the persecution that these people would face as a result of the destruction of this temple. I mean, people are scattered in the mountains all around, the, all around this region to avoid this persecution some of the worst things that they had ever seen. And what Jesus does is he tells his disciples, this is your opportunity to make much of me. This is your opportunity to make much of the cross. You will bear witness of me. Now, one of the things I, if you've ever followed uh, church history, one of the things that you'll see in church history is that when the church is persecuted, is when the church strives the most. And I love that. Because, man, it's proving that what the cross has accomplished for us is sufficient. And we end up like the widow here, who were beat down so much that we say Christ is enough. And I, I love that about the church. I think that's one of the struggles that we have in America, is we've never been persecuted in this way. Yet. We've not done it. I mean, I love books like, man, if you've ever grabbed Fox's Book of Martyrs, one of the best books you can read, because you're just looking throughout history over and over and over again of these people with their dying breath said that Christ is enough. Reading books like Tortured for Christ by Richard, Richard Warmbrand, one of the best books I've ever written on, uh, ever read on persecution and how, man, he's even seen the best churches, the best Christians as he's ever seen are some of those uneducated people because it, even in their persecution, they're saying that Christ is enough. And he's saying this, you will bear witness in the suffering. Here's the thing about suffering. We often think that suffering takes us to a place that we, we're not really ourselves. You ever hear that? Like somebody who's going through something really hard and really difficult, I often say, well, I'm just not myself right now because I'm going through this. The thing about suffering is this. 
Suffering actually shows you who you really are. I mean, I know, like, I've been through some suffering recently in the last year and a half. I mean, when you go through it, it's not like your first reaction is going to be praise God and you're ready to sing praise songs. It's not necessarily that. But I will say this. You don't stay bitter and you don't stay angry with God your whole life. Because ultimately you're saying what he's given me, the cross of Christ, he loves me because of what Jesus has done. He's died in my place for my sins. He lived the life that I should have lived. He died the death that I was condemned to die. He rose from the grave, conquering this penalty of Satan, sin, and death. And that's enough for me. So you don't stay there in your suffering. You're exposed when you suffer. And this is what he's saying is going to happen. But you will. That's what he tells the disciples. You will bear witness. And that's the good news. He even tells them even more in verse 14 through 15. It says this, Settle it therefore in your minds that do not meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you, listen to the confidence that we can have in Christ. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You see what he's setting up for him? Your testimony is going to be so strong and so powerful that man, the spirit of God is going to speak for you. I'm not saying this to advocate laziness and saying you shouldn't read the scriptures because the Spirit of God would just tell you everything to say. It's not saying that. Mostly what he's showing us is your testimony will stand strong even in the amongst of the worst critics. Even Luke 12, it says this. He says, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself and what you should say. It tells the disciples the same thing here. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in the very hour what you ought to say. I don't know if you've ever been in a gospel conversation and when you're just sitting there and this guy is, or this lady is going through something that's just horrific and you don't know what to say and you're just asking, God, help me walk this person through what Christ has done. Man, and just, you're just quoting stuff that you've read like 18 years ago, right? And you just feel like you're like Jason Bourne. You have this like identity, you know, this crazy memory that you can just share all this stuff. And this is what he's saying. This is the hope that we have in Christ. Man, the Spirit of God just can do this. It's the confidence. And so look at this next in verse 16. He says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Not a hair on your head will perish. It's very interesting here what he says because he says not a hair on your head will be perished. Now, what's kind of ironic about this is that he's telling this to the disciples, which, by the way, 10 out of the 11 that he's talking to at this point die of a martyr's death. One of them, John, was not martyred. He was actually, he died in exile, but he has the scars to prove great persecution. He was thrown in a hot basin of oil. So you have all of these guys that it seems like the hair on their head has been tampered with a bit, right? So what do you do with that? Because of what Jesus is saying, here's what Jesus is setting up. Jesus is showing them that their eternal reward in the gospel will not be harmed or tampered with in any way. That they are under the sovereign, eternal protection of an incredible God who preserves them and allows them to endure. 
I mean, by the way, the reward that we have is Christ in heaven. I know we always think about like, man, crowns that we get and we get to throw them back on Jesus' feet. He is the crown. He is the reward. Multiple times when you see it in scripture, when it talks about reward, it's one word. It's reward, not rewards. He's the reward. Our salvation is in place. We get to sit and worship him, God, forever and ever in glory because of the truth of the resurrection that Christ gives us a new body and Christ gives us a new head and Christ gives us new hair, right? So that's not going to be tarnished. You're going to sit in glory forever with a new body and new life. Your life will, you may die for my name's sake, but your eternal reward is always preserved under the cross. And this is what he's setting up for these disciples who are about to face major suffering, major persecution. And then he says this in verse 19. I love this verse. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. One of the things that I think a mark of a believer really is, a true Christian is one who endures. It's one who endures. Not based on anything that we've done, but based on what the Spirit is doing in us and working us and changing us from the inside out. And that our eternal reward will not be harmed or tampered with in any way that we can rely and hope in it because of the resurrection of Jesus. I love Philippians 1.6. It says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3.14, it says, For we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, man, we can focus all day long on the external stuff and try to build our lives on what they would build their lives on, the significance of the temple and our long robes and our garments and the places at the table and the names that we drop to show people how important we are. But what Jesus shows is this, nope, it's about the internal things that Christ is changing from the inside out. And I love this widow who's smack dab in the middle of this crazy, gloomy story. Because she's coming to God with this approach of all in. Nothing I have matters because my life is in his hands. And I love what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You've given up all that you have. And when your life is in his hands and you realize that your life has been beat down to this point, you've gone through this amount of suffering, you've gone through this many trials, and I believe this widow would have done that, she would have realized he's enough. He's enough. And when you realize that, you are rich. But you're rich in him. And my goal is this. And we're not building monuments that will be destroyed on external things that we're trying to build to get checkpoints for God. Rather, we're just saying, here's my heart. You can take it. Here's everything. Here's my time. Here's my mission. Here's my money. Here's my marriage. Here's my relationships. They're all yours. It's everything. And that's what a life of a believer who gets the gospel, that's how he lives. Let's pray.